AWE are proud distributors of Sony televisions and home cinema projectors, bringing you the best content from lens to living room. For more information, visit awe-europe.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Integrated Home, the podcast that's produced by the home integration community for the home integration community. My name is Jeff Hayward, and in this episode, we're taking a detailed look at rack building with two experts in the field from the home integration industry. We've put together a set of questions that will give you the answers to everything you've ever wanted to know on the subject. So let's get to it. Welcome to The Integrated Home. DBM delivers experiences that go beyond the ordinary and suspend reality. From powerful loud speakers and state-of-the-art projection systems to acoustic treatment and screens, DBM partners with pioneering brands including Barco Residential, Complete Acoustic Treatment Systems, Display Technologies, Waterfall Audio and Meridian Audio to give you the very best high performance products for your home cinema projects. Like you, we're committed to achieving excellence. Visit distributedbym.com to find out more. Today, we're joined by Nick Pigeon from Visualization and Simon Falstow from Sona. Welcome to you both. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's start with you first, Nick. Visualization and your background. What, where have you come from? What's it all about? Okay, so um, I set up Visualization 16 years ago. Um, we're a team of rat builders, uh, predominantly known for, for that side of the industry, and we provide a resource into the whole AV industry. Um, but we're obviously known for the, the racks we're building in our premises over in Maidenhead. Very good. And you've also got an AV racks name attached to you? Yeah, um, I eventually got fed up of um, spelling visualisation to people when it came to the web address. So we went for what we did, AV rack build. So most people know us out there as AV rack build. Very good. All right. And Simon, what about you and Sona? Um, so Sona is will be nine years old this year actually uh, we're primarily a residential integrator so everything that you would usually expect from a company like so data networks uh, light control systems private home cinemas and, and everything in between um i've been in the industry probably about 20 years with various companies um and i i guess we're probably I guess to our peers and those in the industry, we probably are most known, I'm guessing, for probably our social media presence and very pretty racks, I hope. And correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you pick up an award this year at the, uh, or last year rather, at the CD Awards for, for your racks? Yeah, so we've, uh, I mean, we've been fortunate enough to, to win a couple of awards for Best Dressed Rack and, and also been shortlisted a couple of years. So, uh, yeah, very proud of that. And all the other awards we won this year, last year, actually. And you were a senior member of Excellence too? Yes, we are. Cool. Okay. So we've got a couple of rack experts here. I'm sure you'll agree. Nick, first question then. What is actually involved in designing a good rack and why should I bother? Okay. Yeah, good question. So there's kind of two sides to it. There's all the considerations of, of, of what needs to be 
thought about and then the output of um, a rack elevation and something that people can work from. So uh, I'm, I'm always big on saying to any, anyone we work with, we expect a, a rack elevation as a bare minimum starting point to start thinking about um, how, we, how we're going to um, go about that build and cost for it. Um, you know, when, when I talk about the considerations, you've got anything from the size of the room, volume of equipment that you need to put in there, um, and then things like ergonomics and weight distribution. Go on, Simon, your choice. Why, why should you bother with, with putting effort into a good rack? Well, I think um, I'm generalising here, but the majority of systems that we work on are, are reasonably high value, £100,000 and above. And the majority of that cost generally is actually in the rack. So for me, part of this element or part of the approach is making sure that all that equipment is safely, securely housed and, and cabled and that it's reliable and robust because of that. Um, I've got to admit, probably our, our drive for rack building at, at, in the very, very early days, if you like, actually came from me just probably having a bit too much OCD. Um, I just wanted them to look pretty and look nice and kind of a client to walk into the room and go, oh my goodness, that's amazing. I kind of just didn't expect it, never seen anything like that before. Off the back of that, we have kind of discovered through the process of doing that and just making them look nice that actually there's huge advantages off that, like ongoing servicing and maintenance, uh, reliability, heat management, et cetera, et cetera. Some of the things that kind of Nick's touched on there. Um, but in terms of the process, Nick's kind of covered it really. I mean, for us, there's a there's a couple of steps that we work through that is firstly well how big does the thing need to be to fit all the pieces of equipment in does it make sense for it all to be in one single rack or actually because of thermal heat management power distribution weight and management does it actually make sense to have a number of smaller racks once you've kind of worked that out and will it go into the space to then how is the equipment arranged within it how many cables are coming into all of those do we have logistical issues with it's all very well and good fitting x number of pieces of equipment into a rack but if every piece of equipment has 50 cables run into it because it's a 48 port switch it might not actually make sense to put all of those in one piece of equipment so it like nick says i, I could kind of go on about this probably for for, for hours but you can kind of understand that it's once you actually start looking at it in detail there's quite a lot of different elements to look at that actually result in that that end product where would you say the standard of rack building is at in the industry simon you probably see quite a few uh racks particularly if you're going to upgrade a job or someone else's work that you you have a look at what's your perception um I, that's a that's really not a difficult question, but I, I think the variety of standard that I see is is just is huge. So um, the stuff that I see on uh, social media, I, I have to say, I see some incredible stuff, like really, really impressive from anything from companies like ours to companies much bigger than ours to kind of one and two uh, main companies who are just doing kind of exceptional work. Um, but I have to say the majority of stuff that we're asked to take over is, is pretty poor, to be honest. Um, and I, I don't know if that's a result of, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about this going on, but a, a lot of these racks seem to be built on site. And that, in my opinion, is always a recipe for disaster. It just is so hard to maintain a standard when you're on site with a client looking over your shoulder 
under pressure to get things done. It's the easiest thing in the world to just, all right, let's just get this in and we'll deal with it later and then not deal with it later. Um, but it, what I see with my own eyes, but that's probably biased because the reason that we're being asked to look at them is probably because there's issues and the client isn't maybe happy with the system in the first place, are generally very bad. But I have to say, I'm generally reassured by what I'm seeing on social media and, and speaking with my peers about. Yeah, very much so. It is, it's a mix out there. I think the good news is social media is kind of promoting this is how it should be done um, and, and everyone is trying to up their game. There will always be those, those bad apples, unfortunately, and, and they're the ones that make our, our whole industry look bad. Um, I, I was on the uh, judging panel for the, uh, the CDO Awards uh, three or four years back, and I remember kind of the general consensus in the room was, you know, the rack's well wired then the system's been well thought about, well cared from. You know, it, it's almost a sign for the rest of the project how, how much care and attention is taken into that rack. And, and as Simon says, if, if, if you don't have the OCD, I say to people, don't bother. You know, you need it because you you to be a good rack builder, you need to care about that, that finished product. And ultimately that then does escalate throughout the project on the serviceability, you know, a big part I think people forget especially when they're in those smaller companies before they've grown is it might not be them returning to fix or, or repair or, or or service that project in the future it may be their the guy they've employed two years down the line everything about a well-built rack will support the growth of your business because you're setting standards there for the second third fourth guy to come in and go yeah I know what I'm looking at because this is our you know, this is how we work and this is our approach. If it's thrown in, as people call kind of a, a rat's nest or a bird's nest, it will probably have created problems before you've left the project. And then you can imagine you go back to service it and you, you pull one cable out and something else pops out with it. it and it's an endless nightmare. And how much time, Nick, should you allow for building a rack? Is there is there like a kind of measure for that of, of what you should do? I'm, I'm always interested. Commercially, a lot of people have used this rule of um, two hours and occupied you. Um, and that's generally how we, we we tot up our time. And what we do with that is an hour and a half goes to the, the build of the project. And that's anything from preparing your cables to loading your rack to lacing and terminating it. And then we actually keep half an hour per, per occupied you um, for the test guy. So everything we build when we've we've completed it will go through our inspections uh, area to ensure we the, the team have built what the drawings say and there's no interpretation that's been misinterpreted or heaven forbid when you're terminating 300 rj45s that there might be a few few wrong terminations in there so that, everyone has kind of their own way of ways of uh, costing uh, projects like that the, the way that we work internally is we have uh, minutes if you like assigned to different products in our catalogue so when we add a 24 port switch to a project if it's uh, we have it kind of marked as if it's in a rack and if it is in a rack it has automatically adds 24 lengths of cat 5 to it the boots that go with that and each of those elements has time associated with it and that time is based on putting an end putting one end on the cable putting an end on the on the other putting a terminal on the other end lacing it into the rack and then kind of averaging it out so our the way we do it is simply built up by what we're physically putting in the rack 
And you talked earlier, Simon, about um, building on site causes problems. What are the benefits then when you're controlling the environment, building them off site and, and moving stuff in? How, how is that really helpful for you? I mean, I think that there's a couple of really kind of highlights for me there. And one of them is is one that Nick alluded to earlier, which is testing. Um, like one of the things that we do here is is build all of our actual here and then essentially set our systems up here, pre, uh, pre-configure them, test them and make and essentially get the system up and running before it even goes to site. Now, that obviously has has huge benefits in terms of time on site and troubleshooting and fault finding. If you know that, that system works before you take it to site, then if it gets to site and something doesn't work, you can very quickly say, well, I know it's a fault from this point on because from the front of that rack all the way through the loom to the end of that rack, it's been tested and I know it works. So that immediately gives you quite, I think, quite significant advantages on site. From back to purely an aesthetic, if you like, and a neatness point of view, I just don't believe that you, you can get it to the same kind of standard on site as you can in a controlled environment where you've got all your all your tools and all your consumables and all your equipment around you, all your parts. You can kind of allocate time properly rather than rushing to get things done. And you've also got that element, it isn't always the case, but certainly examples I've seen where I thought this is just crazy is when you see people building on site with as the client is moving in. It's like, well, with the best will in the world, you're never going to deliver the best products you can when you're under pressure to get something completed. All your focus is going to be is just getting it done and then moving on to the next job. So for me, it's it's really critical, not just for the end result of the physical, what it looks like and how neat it looks, but in terms of how robust and reliable the system is and how efficient and effective you you are on site and therefore look to the client on site. It's just in time delivery, if you like. You, you deliver it when the site's ready. Um, you don't, the amount of racks you see and they're full of dust and that's because they've been built on a building site and they've been there kind of well before the, the project was finished. But as Simon says, I, and, and I've been there over the years, I've been on sites for, for, for customers where they've gone, no, no, we can't, we can't get it in afterwards, please build it on site. And you're kicked out of the room because the carpet fitter wants to fit the carpet where the racks sit in. Uh, they want to finish painting the room. All, we've all heard the stories, all of those sort of things. Um, but as you say, if, if you've tested it, you're commit not you're not commissioning the project on the day you finish the job, and, and by default, that's what happens. Is there's no intention to um, not allow commissioning time, but by default, because you're there working around other trades. The project's finished generally on the on the day that the client's trying to kick you out the door, but you've probably lost your commissioning phase. So not only have you got a commission the whole system, you've that still includes the, the rack, the programming. You know, we we've been we took that from the commercial world, building off site and uh, you know, not so much COVID years, but on a good year, we build about a thousand racks a year in our premises in Maidenhead. And it's just an efficient system and we get all of the efficiencies out of our team. And, and that sounds similar to, to what Simon's saying is if you've got the facility there, you've got the, the cables, the connectors, everything you need. There's no, I'm just going to pop back to the van to, to grab this connector to terminate it. Oh, hang on a minute. I haven't got it on the van. Let me pick that up from the office. I'll be back tomorrow. You think about the time lost 
and the time saved just from changing the process. And yes, it it's a different mindset. It's a, it's a big shift for so many people. But in the long term, once you've finessed it, it's 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 the best way to do it. And are clients receptive to that change in mindset too, Simon? Um, we don't really give them a choice, to be honest. Um, in the nicest possible way. That, that's kind of just certainly all the clients that we're dealing with when we're speaking to them they they just get that and I, I guess as Nick and I both said it, it is just when you when you lay it out like that it, it does just seem common sense um obviously it's a it is a better way of doing it I appreciate that logistics if you don't have a facility like that then then that can be difficult um However, if you've got the ability to do that, and I, when, when CERNA started, I, I literally had um, a self-storage facility. I, I have very, quite good memories of sitting in the rack, in one of those at 10 o'clock with the radio on, building a rack. So really, there's, there are ways and means of doing it. You don't need an all-sing-all-dancing kind of facility with all benches set up and stuff. But very early on, that gave us the ability to deliver these really well tested, really well configured kind of equipment racks for these expensive systems that we're, we're delivering with all the advantages that we've we've just been discussing. Um, and, and if you say to a client, look, this means that you're going to get a better product at the end of it. As a result of that, it's going to be more reliable. If there are any problems with it, we're probably going to spend less time on site because it's going to be easier to manage and maintain and support and upgrade. So, um, and when we actually do come to site to do the install, I'm going to be in your house and disrupting you for less time. So really, there's, it, it's hard for a client to argue against that and say, mm, well, no, I don't really like the sound of that, actually. Uh, there are a lot of similarities. I started building them in my living room of my two bed flat and uh, I used to order the courier and make him drag out a 42U rack into the back of a van with me um, when I first started. And I think back, well, the first question everyone asks me now is how does the insurance work? And it's like, of course we're insured. We're, in, we're insured to hold your kit, um, why it's in our possessions, all that sort of thing. I probably wasn't back then in, in hindsight. Um, but in, in the same way, you know, I started there. So whenever we see pushback, you, I did it in the living room. I think I graduated to a friend's garage and then eventually I, I um, took a premises on. But long story short with that piece is, um, the pushback I actually get is the integrator, you know, my clients isn't the homeowner, it's it's businesses um, that are integrating these, you know, the CDA members, the, the guys are out there doing that. And it's those guys that, because they've never done it that way, it's alien to them. And it's it puts, they, they don't like the idea. Now, I put it to two things. One, I think a lot of people feel like they've lost control of, of that element of their project. But the reality is, you know, we do this all day, every day. I don't want to ring our own bell, but, you know, we're experts. So that the fact you're relinquishing control to us is only going to give you a better product in the end. Um, the only other one, and, and it's a valid one, is is weight when it gets to site. You know, some of these are going into an apartment that, and, and the rack needs to come up the staircase. And, and that's only a matter of planning, OK, what needs to be reboxed before we ship it so that we can we can transport it. The, and then the final piece is, you know, it can't get through the door to the rack room where it's got fit. And and there's the reason that it needs to be a site, a site project. But, you know, with our team, we'll still we'll still treat it in the same way. A big part of what we do is 
Um, we do all our cable preparation at the beginning of the project, and that ensures you know we, we hold a hell of a stock at our place. But if we're building you know 20 racks at a time, it might be we don't have the stock. Doing your cable preparation first allows you to think about all that ordering, everything up front, so that by the time it hits the the workshop floor, they've got a bag of every cable terminated one end, every mating connector ready to terminate the other end, and there's no hard holdups throughout that process. What about design time, Simon? We've got pretty good now at knowing how long it takes us to kind of put a 44U rack together or a 40U rack, if you like. We know the, the documents and the processes that we have to run through to produce that. So we've got that to a, I like to think, a fairly efficient process, if you like, but we've done a fair few of them over the last eight or nine years. Um, as with everything, I think you'll, you'll always find such a huge range of what people think is required or needed or probably partly i think there's probably also what what do they feel comfortable charging the client for i think there are probably people out there who maybe feel like they would struggle to justify dedicated time against putting a rack layout together or the calculations for btus or power distribution and ups calculations and things like that and I think that's kind of on, on this podcast and, and various other industry podcasts, that's something that people speak about and it's being able to charge properly for your time. I think it was part of that whole discussion and making sure that you're able to do that and the client understands that that's where a lot of the value is. We encourage uh, our, our clients to do their designs. You know, um, we pretty much have all the, the facets of an integrator without being one. Um, and there's a reason we're not one. Um, we do hold people's hands when they need to. Uh, we just started doing a uh, rack elevation service because we found so many people just didn't have a basic kind of idea to put their elevation together. Um, so that's that's something we, we've introduced. And that's not for, you know, that's not so much for us to make money um, in as much as there's, there's so many poorly planned racks out there. So if we, we've, we've tried to do something as cost effective as possible to help people with that piece. Um, Time-wise, again, like Simon says, we, we've seen everything from, from people that um, lay everything in AutoCAD. Um, D-Tools, obviously, is a lot of people in our industry's favorite. And I think I had a picture of someone's whiteboard sketch of their system design. You know, I've, I've seen it all, but we get to the stage now where we encourage, we can't build without, you know, we, we physically can't ensure we're giving the integrator what they want if they've not taken the time to, to plan that design out because the, a design is open to interpretation, um, whether that's what inputs they like to run to where, um, you know, some people set out their, their room layout hanging off a matrix the same every time and yeah why not it, you know you're ready for your next project because there's more standardization there um, the key piece for me is is always have a standard of, of what you expect and, and produce that for every project same for you simon um in in terms of how we put the the design of the rack layout together yes we have kind of an approach of what, what we put at the bottom, if you like, where switches sit, where we try and put audio equipment and video distribution. So yes, in terms of how we how we put the rack together and how we, how we lay them out, we do all, we, we do try and standardize the type of rack we use, although that's difficult um, 
because residentially, as you can imagine, we quite often have to squeeze these into places that are maybe not were not intended for equipment rack in the first place. So the type of rack, the access to it, how cables are getting into it um, can be a consideration. And that can sometimes have an influence on how we arrange equipment within it. Uh, whether we take cables off the bottom or the top, for example, whether we take them off the left hand side or the right hand side on the back. Um, so they're, they're things that we like to have a, a standard approach, but every project can sometimes force us to reevaluate and tweak that. Any other tips on saving time in, in designing and building racks, Nick? I think it's always breaking it down. I'm a, I'm, I'm a big believer in everything I do in life, just trying to chunk it up so that you can digest it if you like so um we always follow the same system it's probably a little bit different because of the what we're doing and who we're working for but we always start with an overview that creates for us um a cable schedule of everything that we're gonna need to make up in that rack and and include for for the build from there that list um goes to our, our cable preparation team they cut number, terminate all the cables ready for it to go out, as I, as I suggested earlier. Um, we do the loading as a stage, lacing as a stage, and even once we get down to lacing wire in the rack, we break that down into the different signal types, and then we do termination as a stage. So we're always just trying to find the efficiencies throughout every step of the build. And for that, and for us, it's, you know, our, we make our, our, our money on, on labor. On, on every minute, every hour. We're not really selling active hardware, things like that. We do we do um, distribute racks these days. Again, we've kind of found that there's some people that they're keen to keep the, the rack build in-house, but um, outsource the, um, the bill of materials to us, if you like, so that we can put that together and, and supply, supply the rack. But it's always about finding those efficiencies in, in each area of the build or even at the planning stage, you know, that's the key and, and keep standardising, standardising and doing it the same way over and over. Simon, you talked earlier about um, the space that you're obviously sometimes faced with when you've got to put a rack somewhere. Do clients often say to you, uh, can't you just use the shelves in our understairs cupboard? Uh, excellent question and I'm sure everyone in the industry has probably heard that or come up against that kind of question from a client. Uh, the way I think of it is that um, you've got professional equipment, you've got professional system that should be housed in a professional manner um, and it's not just a, a physical, we don't think of it as a physical place to put a piece of equipment, it's making sure that it can be housed in a way that the cabling can be done effectively and efficiently, that thermal uh, heat can be managed properly, um, that there are accessories available that for that rack that let you mount maybe non-standard pieces of equipment. Uh, so we, we treat the equipment rack as a completely separate element of our proposals we detail it as such so it's actually separated out in the same way that the audio distribution system or the video distribution system might be um, and fundamentally with the best will in the world you are never going to be able to properly cable manage and dress equipment on a shelf it just it, they're simply not designed for that purpose for you to have good and free access to both the front of the equipment and the rear of the equipment and for that to be like managed ongoing um, it's just it's just not a practical way of dealing with it in my opinion cable management that's a that's a big deal right nick 
Yeah, it's, it's a key. It's a key piece to the puzzle. I think when when I mention it in courses, it's the one piece that can change um, any of the guys wiring racks mindsets to how they approach it. You know, strain relief of the cables, um, the ability to to support and, and loom and manage the bend radius of those cables. And that's kind of horizontally and vertically. Um, most people are using cable tray or finger trunking up and down their racks. But I still see a lot out there that that don't and can't understand, you know, how they achieve um, a neat end result if they're not able to manage all those separate looms and, and signal separation um, from, from that point of view. But it, it's it's if you bought a rack, you need the cable management. It, it's part and parcel of it. Like tongue in cheek, I've I've heard stories from clients that they've had an equipment rack that has been literally just you open the back of the rack or you spin the rack around and there's literally just there's no management whatsoever. Or there maybe is, but as Nick said, there's not it's just cables tied to other cables. They're not actually managed or addressed to a fixed point and rooted and there's no separation. And and I've had clients tell me all the time, every time someone comes out to look at it they leave and they've broken something else and I think Nick alluded to that earlier and that's absolutely a problem because you go to fix one thing but in order to get to that connector or that socket you've got to move 17 other wires and connectors out of the way all of which or some of which may have been under tension for the past six months and you just moving them or tweaking it or something affects a core or a conductor in one of them and all of a sudden you just created an absolute disaster for yourself and you're the last person to touch it so all of a sudden it's it's your responsibility so that's that's something that we're very mindful of when we go to look at jobs like that but that that's a prime example for me of just yes that equipment is in a rack but it doesn't really mean anything if all you admit cabling in the back of it is just kind of taut into it and just laid over the top of everything else that, that doesn't actually benefit you at all one other thing around cable management should you go for cable ties or hook and loop nick <laughs> the, the the big debate um so we generally have got a rule that we use um hook and loop on anything uh category cable digital cables things like that i think we're at the stage where we might end up just moving across to it as standard we we work to clients so we we uh, i remember we had one client where we tried to enforce hook and loop and he called us once we delivered the rack and said hang on i just wanted standard cable ties you know so that's one of the, that's our probably our biggest defining factor is what what's the client standard what does he want um we've got projects um where they they insist on uh, hook and loop for everything so we'll do it in, in in that way and as i say we've got a bit of a mixture of the two but i think i'm bowing down to peer pressure of all those people that pick out the bad points online and they always go well why do you mix and match and we mix and match because the guys would rather wire in cable ties um and the industry seems to be slowly pushing us towards hook and loop despite no one being able to actually define where where's that where's that um legislated other than recommended we don't tend we don't use hook and loop at all if i'm honest and the primary reason for that is um we found through if you like testing and and messing about in racks that we almost end up dressing twice 
because to get our cable looms in place, we almost have to put a, a cable tie loosely in place, certainly if it's a bigger bundle, because it's very hard for hook and loop to, I'm sending, I'm sounding properly rack nerdy now, I apologize for that. Um, but it's very hard to dress a significant loom in of, uh, 20, 24 cat, cat cables or even speaker cables and get them held in place while you're, whilst that dressing process is happening with, with hook and loop. So you almost end up using cable ties to hold them in place whilst you, I'm sure Nicola will agree or disagree with me I'm on this. I'm nodding here in the background. It's, and that's exactly how we work. We, the, the, the team will lace the rack in standard cable ties because um, it's, not, it's not an issue with damaging the cable. It, it's an issue with um, almost strangling the cable, if you like. So they'll lace because that's the only way to get the neatness, and then they'll go back over with with hook and loop and and and, and cut the cable ties back out. So Simon's hit the nail on the head. You do, and I know Simon uses a slightly different tie altogether. Yeah. So we um, we kind of came across that almost a bit randomly, to be honest. So we we kind of almost accepted that it was very easy to crush cables with a with a zip tie like if you're not paying attention and you do pull it a couple of notches all of a sudden you can you can put kinks in category cables so we use a product called we have no affiliation to the book wrap strap which was i don't know if anyone remembers it was actually a dragon's den kind of thing and it's like um i guess it is like a hook and loop kind of um it's <laughs> it's almost like a reusable zip tie. You use it once, you cut off the bit you need, then you can use it again, cut off the next bit. So from one wrap strap, you can quite often do three or four equivalent cable ties, if you like. But the, the inherent nature of the loops mean it's quite it's quite flexible. There's some inher inherent kind of movement in it, um, but it's still got very good, oh, I don't even know, uh, holding strength, if you like. So we use that for anything that we class as um, like a, a crush, um, could be crushed like category cabling, but to anything that's a, like a solid core, it's not a solid core, a stranded cable, like a speaker cable, for example, we still use zip ties for um, because of the strength that's kind of needed to hold those in place properly. Thermal management. Nick, talk to me about the, the, the time you need to put into getting that right. So this is this is a bugbear of mine. So you know, a lot of people spec specify in some kind of fan tray, and great the rack we've done the thermal management. That rack's going to be going to be fine and dandy. I think um, more and more you're seeing people take the time to do the BTU calculations. That's a key a key piece of it. Um, I always say to everyone. Um, a bit like Simon said, I'm not affiliated to Middle Atlantic, but they've got a great white paper on their website that you can download on thermal management. And um, work I've done with, with the likes of Avixa um, on standards, we were trying to find reference material on thermal management and everything, including Glidescape, refers back to Middle Atlantic's white paper. So, you know, that's the one, one to look at. But, you know, there, there, there's an element um, of it much further than the... the okay, I need a fan tray, it's um, how hot's my rack running? Um, how am I gonna ventilate my rack to, to work with my thermal management plan? And then actually how, how big a fan or how many fans do I need to draw that, that heat out? And then also where's that heat going? Because if you just put it into a, a cupboard, 
the chances are that heat's just going to circulate in the cupboard. So you've got to think about where you can extract that, that um, heat to. So we're, we're trying to pioneer that people give it a bit more thought. And I think it needs to start with educating people with how, how to think about thermal management. You, you don't always, you know, if you've got a small little equipment rack with not a lot of kit that's, that's not running very hot, you don't necessarily need it on every, every system, but that starts with that BTU calculation. If you're not thinking about that, how do you know how hot that, that rack's gonna run? Um, and then that's always comes back to serviceability. Is it going to last? Because if it's running hot, it's going to it's going to fall over and it's going to be you. They're on the phone to on the Friday night when they're trying to watch the football and their system's gone down because it's overheated. Yeah, I mean, that um, the, the Middle Atlantic paper that, that Nick's refers to is an excellent resource. I, I think that really um, it's also very approachable. It's dead really kind of lame and common sense approach to kind of saying look this is heat works and how heat works and this is how you can apply it to a rack um i think as nick said a lot of people do just they stick a couple of rack fans in the top or they stick a they stick a, a one new fan shelf in where they happen to have space and right yeah job done job like box ticked i'll put it in the cupboard now and not have to worry about it but i think it's relatively easy to just look at your equipment and kind of see like what is going to generate a heat and where is that going to go? Um, are, the, are, the, are there extracts, uh, intakes on the sides of the unit or on the top and the bottom of the unit? Um, like I, I very often kind of look and, okay, so do we need to leave a space between this piece of equipment if there's no, if there's no vents on the top and bottom? That kind of comes almost from experience of the, the products that you're reg regularly dealing with. But it's even things like, and, and this is mentioned on the lines of things like, if you are managing thermal and, and heat dissipation through a rack, don't put a vented blank panel in every single space up the, up the rack, because all you do is you, you just create this kind of, this almost infinite loop at the top. So you'll notice if you look at any of our racks, any 40U rack of ours, the top half will not have vent panels in it at all, generally. I'm generalising it, but certainly the, the top section of it to force air to be brought in at the bottom and work its way up. But going back to what we are talking about, cable management, a lot of that is almost kind of rendered mute if you open the back of the cabinet and it's absolutely full of cabling because that heat is then completely restricted from the convecting up to the rack and, and escaping. So if your rack is absolutely full of cables, that's going to stop heat and allow it to gather and kind of form around equipment. Um, and it just comes back to that longevity and reliability of the system. Every little thing you're doing is almost, it's a, a potential issue that you're going to end up coming back for at some point. Um, and I think Nick made a really good point about the environment it's going into. If it's going into an air-conditioned room, a big plant room with an air-conditioned space, you firstly need to be doing BTU calculations so you can say to the, the mechanical guys, look, this is the kind of heat I'm generating, so this is how you can properly size your, your unit. Equally, if you just put it into a cupboard, but it's sealed, then it doesn't really matter how good your thermal management is because it comes out somewhere. And if it can't go anywhere, ultimately it's going to heat up the cupboard and you're going to have a problem. So it's that kind of whole kind of holistic approach. It's not just the pieces of equipment, it's the pieces of equipment in the rack and then the environment that a rack is going into and managing that whole process. Okay, Nick, power distribution. What should you do about that? <laughs> Plan, plan it, <laughs> planning again. 
Um, the, there, there's a few different points to think about how many um, outputs you need. Quite often we'll see people have, will um, plan for one power distribution and that's quite often a one U 10 way, 12 way unit. And then you count up the, as simple as that, count up the pieces of equipment and then there's 20 pieces of equipment. So now how are we gonna, how are we gonna manage that? Um, thinking about the load that we're gonna hang off um, if that's on a 13 amp feed or a 16 amp feed, um, quantifying the load that you've got within the rack um, and then where it's gonna be located. I think you get a lot of vertical cable management, um, which is great if you've got the depth within the rack to um, locate that. Um, but equally, you can get uh, rack mounted um, one U, two, uh, two U units that can mount in, in, in the front elevation. But if you've got three, four um, power distributions in a, in a 40 U rack, which we've seen from time to time, it's all additional use space you need to find. If it's not been factored in in that planning stage, the chances are there won't be sufficient space for it. And I agree with everything Nick said. No, I think it's, uh, I, I put my hands up and very early on, we used to be, I personally, when it was literally me on my own building and designing racks, I used to be terrible for getting plug top power supplies for equipment. So you'd count up all your main pieces of equipment. Oh yeah, I've got PDU for that. And then you got three or four plug top power supplies that all of a sudden you've, oh, right, how do I deal with those? Um, not only is it an extra part, but it's it, it can't plug into my PDU because it's a plugged up power supply. So I just like encourage people to look at alternatives like rack mounted low voltage power distribution for powering things like that in the rack that enable you to be much neater and, and create a much more, a much better product in terms of aesthetic and cable management. But very often those devices will have much better quality power supplies than a, a plug top three pound power supply that a, a HDMI ballon might come with, for example. And very often they'll have redundant power supplies, those as well. So again, it's just this whole serviceability, reliability, robustness. Um, the only other thing I would maybe add is, again, depending on the, the level of system and service plan or ongoing maintenance contracts that you may have got, just think about if clients need to reboot some of this equipment. It's all very well and good having like a really nice PDU that's kind of on a vertical PDU on the back of a rack. But if a client just wants to reset a skybox or an Apple TV or a piece of equipment like that, and the only way of them doing that is either through the control system, which may or may not be working at that time, that may be the problem and that's what they need to reset, or that some clients just like the, the reassurance of being able to go and turn off a skybox and turn on a skybox. So, I mean, that comes down to kind of your initial client brief, if you like, and, and specification development. But just think about, there's physically making sure you've got enough things and, and enough power to power your equipment, but also making sure that can be managed both by you and your team, but also the client potentially. Good points. Nick, why do some integrators have termination panels between the rack and site cabling and others wire direct? I think that's that's back to our, our earlier point of building off-site and on-site. You know, you need to create some kind of system to connect the, the rack cabling to the site cabling. Certainly what I see in, in, in the residential side of things is um, quite often a head end termination panel on the wall and then an umbilical tail from the rack that can then plug up to that. 
Um, it's neat, it's tidy. It means that you can, again, land everything from, from the site on that head end and test your speaker runs and everything before the rack's turned up. Um, test all your network points. Um, so it's a very neat and tidy process, but some people just prefer to, uh, even if they're working off site, they'll often load it, put the power and internal cabling in and come to site and, and hardwire um, site cable straight into the rack. The piece I'm not a fan of is often, we all run spares on site. Where do those spares land when they have no home in a rack? And ultimately they usually end up being coiled up somewhere or other. Um, whereas again, with the termination panel, you could terminate those down um, so that if you want to add something at a later date, they're there and ready just to plug up. What's your preference, Simon? Uh, well, in answer to your specific question, quite controversially, I would say I, I have no idea why people wouldn't run to a termination panel. We, we do it on all of our projects. Um, and I, I just think there's, there's obviously the advantages that Nick's mentioned there in terms of it means you've got a we kind of we refer to it as a demarcation point there's a very clear point in the property where those cables kind of stop they can be tested they can be certified they can be kind of almost signed off as a right that element is done and then if you know that the rack you bring into site is also tested and terminated you plug the two together and in theory you can deliver a, a fairly significant very like kind of on paper, complicated, comprehensive system in the time it takes you to physically get that rack in place and, and plug it together. Now, I know in the past there's been, and I know I've spoken to, to some integrators who have had this kind of approach that for if you're sending video of a category cable, there was even some manufacturer advice, I believe, a few years ago that those feeds should have as fewer uh, connection points, if you like, in them for the best signal integrity, if you like. But having said that, we have never had any issues because of that having a, a patch panel system, if you like, where you have a termination panel at all the cables. So I'm I'm a huge fan of it. We've been doing it since we started, and I kind of brought it in that the company that I was working at before that. I, I just think it's it, for me, it's an absolute no-brainer, even on a very small system, even if it's only just a single edge of Artify patch panel and some F-types. It just gives you such a, a clear point at which to test up to and then move forward. Um, and you don't end up with, as Nick says, 100 cables that you're like, well, well I'll just shove these under the, under the floor or in the wall and kind of deal with those later. And then if we ever expand or upgrade the system in six months, you then, oh, okay, which, which cable am I using? Good stuff. Right. Okay. Final, final question, Nick. One piece of advice for integrators, not sure about what they're doing with racks. What would you, what would you advise them to do? If, if it wasn't send it to us, it's, it's take the time to plan it and standardize it. Uh, I know that's two things, but um, for me, if, if, if you're planning it regularly, you're, you're standardizing anyway, but that will set the precedent for everything you do moving forward. If you don't plan it, you know, if you, if you grow, it's going to come undone um, as, as you go. If you don't grow, you'll go back to that project in two years time and you won't be able to remember what you've done. And, and you'll probably be the guy fighting, knocking your own cables out that you've installed um, without the cable management. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I may, I may cover a couple of points here, but I think that one is you, you kind of got to commit to, I think, understanding and accepting 
or believing that an equipment rack is the right solution to put this equipment in. And kind of if, if you believe that and you can stand behind it and back that up and have an intelligent conversation with a client to explain that, then that's a, a big part of it. And as Nick said, once you've kind of committed to that and you really truly believe the benefits of doing that and why you're going to deliver a better system, then it's about setting those standards in place and yeah, approaching them and say, making sure you, you're laying them out. Um, and, and kind of work, working your space out, working your power out, working your cabling out. And I, I, I genuinely believe that it's, it, it's going to do nothing but improve the quality of systems that you deliver, the reliability of the systems that you deliver, and that's, that can only help you out in the long run. Brilliant advice. Ring are on a mission to make the home install market a bit better for installers and their customers. Introducing Ring X-Line. With six exclusive bundles available via AWE only to X-Line accredited dealers, X-Line combines world-leading security products with a lifetime Ring Protect subscription and an extended four-year limited warranty, all for a one-off cost. To find out more, visit connect.awe-europe.com forward slash X-Line. Let the pros lend a hand. Thank you, Nick and Simon. Some great insights for all the rack geeks out there in our audience. If you enjoyed the show, then please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at IntHomePod, Instagram at IntegratedHomePod and Facebook and LinkedIn at the Integrated Home Podcast. The Integrated Home is brought to you with the support of AWE, Sony, Ring and distributed by Meridian. We are a Wildwood production. The Integrated Home supports Together for Cinema. Together for Cinema is an AV industry movement that designs and installs cinema rooms in children's hospices across the UK. In these special places, children, their families, staff and volunteers are now enjoying fantastic movie experiences together. We want to build more rooms in more hospices for more children. To do that, we need your help. Visit togetherforcinema.co.uk and find out how you can be involved to help make short lives that little bit better.